Uh, it was at the time when I, when I when I announced it to a conference that you were a Twitter spammer. I think because it's slightly controversial. <laughs> So hello and welcome to another episode of the Digital Doctor podcast. Now today I've got two uh, different culprits of the Digital Doctor conference. I have uh, Jeremy Walker who is the Chief Technical Officer of Meducation, a self-confessed coffee geek and uh, nocturnal. Is that right Jeremy? That's correct. And you're also a web developer right? Yes. And I have um, who some have described as the Queen of Twitter, Anne-Marie Cunningham. Hello Anne-Marie. Hello. I believe it was me that actually coined that phrase as well. Yeah, and and uh, I think it stuck. Yeah, good, think, excellent. Yeah. I think probably only within a med- medical education context. I... <laughs> Something to work That's on. I think official uh, official queen it. of Twitter for everything would be a good thing. Yeah. So I think I've got my hands full today chairing you two, um, but we're going to talk about social media, mm-hmm. as if you haven't guessed with with both of you guys on on the show. And uh, I assume that if you're listening, you've heard the title. So, should we just um, say a little bit about what we do? And it seems really weird me asking you this, Anne-Marie, to introduce yourself, because probably everyone already knows who you are and what you do, and no one probably knows who I am. But um, why don't you start and just tell us your many hats? Because you've got like three jobs, haven't you? You've got, you're a GP, you work at the University of Cardiff, Uh and you also got this Twitter job. Is that a job? It's <laughs> yes. a queen, the queen of Twitter. That's a, that's a job, really. Well, it's very interesting to think about it that way. I I started using social media about five years ago because I'd won uh, some prize money for innov- demonstrating innovation by how I used our uh, virtual learning environment. And I went off to two medical education conferences and I came away thinking, oh, it's such a pity that I can't have a way of staying in contact with people and knowing about what people's practice is. So not just the things that make it into journals, but actually how do people solve prob- practical problems that they come across? Yeah. And so I started looking around and saw people blogging and people who were doing research also talking about blogging. And I thought, that's something that I can do. I could start a blog myself and I could try and encourage other people to do it. And I can find a network of people in medical education, which probably must be out there. Um, and so I went off to look for them and I couldn't really find them. And, uh, I tried searching for them on Twitter and places like that. And that was my real aim. I wanted to use social media to be able to connect with other people who are really interested in medical education. So it wasn't so much about me being a doctor or a GP. It was about trying to find people who were a bit, a little bit more niche than that. So that's how you all got started. Mm hmm. Okay. So what came first? Your your medical education role came first and then yeah, the social media Yeah, I worked in the came. university. I worked in the university for about 10 or 11 years now and I'd always been quite, in, moved gradually into more things with about education mm-hmm. uh, rather than, than primarily being a clinical researcher. And then I started, after, through all this, I was always, like, like I said, quite interested in making best use of technology. And a few years ago then I all, but two year, well, a year and a half ago, I started also took on the role as lead for e-learning or use of technology in our course. Um, and I use my networks, which I've established through social media very extensively for that. Brilliant. So, Jer- Jeremy, um, tell us a little bit about education. And let, let's just say that you're, 
you must know lots of medicine by now. You're not a doctor by trade. You're a, you're a web developer. But you, you've started this company with Alistair Buick. Yeah, that's correct. So um, Alistair, or Al, uh, is a long-term friend of mine. I've um, been friends for about 14 years, 15 years now. Um, and he's a doctor. Uh, while he was at sort of university, he, uh, he was at Bristol in his, in his fourth year, I think. And he had this idea that he wanted to create a place where uh, all of his uh, friends and peers in Bristol could sort of take all the material, uh, PowerPoints, things like that, videos as well they were creating, and even notes, and put them one place where everyone else could find them. Mm. Um, and I was running uh, I was running a software consultancy at the time, and he came to me with the idea, uh, and I sort of just did it as a, as a sort of a friend's, friend's help out uh, thing. And then it started taking off. We got a lot of traction in Bristol, and um, we started realizing there was actually sort of a, a bigger project here. And uh, I sort of went full-time on this. And uh, both Alistair and I have been full-time for about two years now. And the idea is basically to build one web space where everyone involved in medicine in the whole world can come and uh, share their experience, share their knowledge, and learn together. So building a place where people can contribute their resources they make, but also uh, contribute their, their knowledge and wisdom through discussion channels. We have like question and answer boards. We've introduced blogs and things recently as well. So mm-hmm. bringing everyone together in one space. And it's great. It's a great resource. You've got like 30,000 videos and podcasts and, and yeah. different resources. So it's a really good place for everybody to go, um, especially, you know, if you're, you're, you're a medical student, um, perhaps in a country that, that doesn't have great resources. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or even some of the uh, medical schools in the UK, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> that don't have great resources. We won't mention any <laughs> names, but um, so you both come from different perspectives, but you're both quite big on social media, as am I. How did you? I mean, how did you uh, decide to to sort of get into social media? Do you think it was just a natural thing, or do you think that that it was a sort of conscious choice and something you wanted to do? And Marie, you said that that you wanted to start engaging different communities around medical education. But what about mm-hmm. you, um, Jeremy? Um. Social media is such a woolly term. I mean, I wrote a mini social network about 14 years ago and we had like a couple of hundred people using it, like discussing on forums, uploading photos of themselves, all this sort of stuff. So that idea of sort of the social web has, has been something that's been in my life forever. Um, things like Facebook and Twitter. I think because I'm in the, the tech world, I tend to stumble across these things very early when they're sort of quite niche geeky products and get a feel for them then. Um, so Twitter and Facebook are the two big established ones, but there's loads of other things that are coming through that you see. So I think it's just more of an organic thing for me rather than decision of trying to be involved in social media. It's just part of the fabric of the community that I'm in. Yeah. Emery, what do you think if, if someone asks, um, I know you've given lots of talks on social media, but what do you think social media is if you had to sort of sum it up to, to sort of people that may not be that familiar with it? It's a really good question. I think that it's about content which things that you can write or produce or share uh, that you you are primarily doing it to share with other people mm-hmm. and often there's an, a, an aspect of network within that where you're actually liking other people and responding to it so it's not just disseminating content but actually responding to other people's things and it's it's usually um, the, the main the main thing about it is that most of the time you don't have an editor it's not like publishing in the bmj where somebody might read what you've said and, and give you some feedback on it or writing in the guardian or so you know most of the time it's just you editing yourself and sometimes you get quite like multi-author blogs for people 
decide and get other people to feed back and things before they do it. But that's that's one of the big things about it that you can very quickly start a conversation and link to it from uh, other places and and have very open conversations. I, th- I think um, social media generally has means very different things for different people. Yeah. So you get an awful lot of you know fourteen year old teenagers who go on and they're using it for a totally different purpose to a 40 year old doctor and for some people it's just a matter of sprouting out all your thoughts arranging things telling your favorite celebrity that you love them and actually that probably makes up the majority of social media um and then there's the social media side that uh Anne marie you know is very big in which is basically curating curating stuff that she finds around the net and pushing that out and also her own thoughts and her own ideas as well and a networking side i i use social media very differently depending on the format so twitter for me is um a news source so i try and keep the amount of people i follow very small i read every tweet i follow links in almost every tweet that's that i see um and that's where I get most of the news about what's happening in the tech community and a lot of interaction with the tech community. Whereas something like Facebook is much more, um, you know, I've just been to the zoo and saw a nice elephant. You know, that's <laughs> they have totally different purposes. And then Google Plus sort of sits somewhere on the corner, not quite sure what its purpose <laughs> is yet. Um, so I think you have very different people using it in very different ways, but also the same person using different social networks in different ways. How about you, Amory? How do how do you use uh, social media? I mean, what networks are you on, and and what things do you use them for? Um, I was asked that once before, and I said, "Well, which one am I? Which ones are not on?" But I'm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I use oh well, I mean, with the video ones. So therefore, I have a Vimeo account, which I keep and post a little, an odd thing online again. I'm using YouTube to really access things more but to, to see what's actually seen. I have Blogger using for my blog and Twitter. I use Facebook and I'm very limited. Well, mainly the main, main, main key thing that I use Facebook for is to within a secret group to communicate with my family about um, how my nephew and niece are getting on and growing up. Uh, I explored a lot about like social bookmarking sites for yeah. being able to share, realize what other people are interested in and be able to disseminate things out that way and spend a long time trying to figure out which might be the best one for that. The same with like mind mapping tools, which might be the best mind mapping tool. So there's a lot, uh, just as Jeremy was saying about lots of different things, new things coming along. You can always see new things coming and how much time do you actually bother spending in them to try and uh, develop before before it actually like winds up or you realize that um sorry i'm just getting oh well, that's probably us messaging you probably <laughs> we're, oh, yeah. we're, we're, we're using social media now as we speak um, okay whilst we're doing okay the podcast. sorry yeah so so yeah so i use lots of different lots of different bits and pieces they're all on my about me page there's something like 12 different <laughs> things so you've got so many you've there. got you've had to aggregate them in one one particular site yeah, doesn't everybody? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the thing. So I, it's, it's interesting. So many of them just disappear as well. So I remember I first came across Amory yeah. a very long time ago on Google Buzz. That was my first ever, I think, I don't know if we interacted, but I certainly knew of you because of Google Buzz, um, which last, or Google Wave, was it? So Google Wave, yeah. Um, 
which oh, yeah. lasted for a couple of years and then just disappeared. And that was going to be the big new social way of communicating with people. Um, yeah. And so, so we've had a real geeky thing about it because it was really everybody wanted to get an invite. Yeah, exactly. So you had to use your networks to be able to manage to get an invite. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So the I amount of these things that I see as well, uh, I'm on invite-only social networks because yeah. so I know I know through maybe two people, you know, away the person who's designed it or made it or something, and so suddenly you end up on this random social network where there's not really anyone else on yet, and you're sitting there trying to work out how how is this going to differ from Twitter? How is this going to? Yeah. You got things like Branch and Medium, which are two uh, social networks that are up and coming that have both come out of and they've come out of the same team as Twitter. And they've yeah. spawned out of those. And it's hang on, how 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 does branch or medium or things like this? How do they really differ from Twitter? What am, am I going to find enough value in that to actually I, spend the half an hour a day of my life that I need? And that that to me is the big thing with a lot of these things is which yeah. one has enough value that I can dedicate time to. And I think that's that's really for, because for my purposes, for the cool question of how do I find these people in medical education and actually talk to them and share and learn from, from from them. And especially now with regards to this like use of technology, um, Twitter is not is, is okay for that in some ways, but but my network has di- diversified so much in there that um, I actually find using a LinkedIn group to start mm. to, to form a community there has actually been more useful with like threaded conversations and whatever than trying to to really see people start and who don't who aren't engaging in any of this at all for them to go off and start deciding to start tweeting and start a blog because you really need to have a blog if you're going to make good use of twitter so do you think uh twitter is kind of where you like to have conversations provoke thought and once you've decided to work on a project you'll then move those conversations off twitter into yes. another medium yeah i mean i think tw- twitter is very interesting for the kind of like zeitgeist for just sort of seeing because it's no longer early adopters, it's completely getting towards, well, it's not, it's that kind of in between, it's not, they're not laggards as such there yet, but it's, it's, a, it's much more mainstream, even though there are a lot of people who, who still aren't there, but there's, there, it, it, there's a big cohort of, say, doctors and medical students using, who are on Twitter now, who are not, I, you know, I wouldn't describe them as being particularly early adopters anymore. I think, yeah, I do. I think as well with with something like Twitter, you it's very much someone pushes, someone else consumes, and occasionally you get spurts of interaction, a conversation that you know goes into a thread with five or six people maybe discussing something. But I don't think you get the same community feel on Twitter that you would in say a LinkedIn group or something, um, where you know mm-hmm. it's very difficult. You you know, in 140 characters, if you try and include five names in a tweet, you've used half your characters up. Um, and so it's actually becomes very difficult to have a conversation with more than one person. So I think there's there's very different things in those two areas. Yeah. And Amory is right. T- Twitter doesn't have early adopts anymore. I've, you know, everyone is starting to use Twitter now. Yeah. Um, and I, I think people tend to just use it to consume. And then there's a few people like you and like me, Anne-Marie, who will use it to push stuff. Um, I, but I think there's a lot more consumers. <laughs> I think, I mean, the thing is, I think you can actually have really quite complex conversations on Twitter I mean, I've I've done in the last I've got a whole lot of tweets to try and wanted to try and make sense of. This was on a, on a, on a Saturday at a, at eleven o'clock in the morning. I asked the question: If you were in a hospital, if you were in in a uh, ward 
that was understaffed and you thought there was a threat to patient safety, who would you report this to and what would the organisation's response be? And that tweet started a massive conversation that started went on the whole way throughout the day about how do people respond to patient safety things. And it emerged out of other conversations that had happened before. And was it really, lots of one-on-one really, -on -one conversations or was it a conversation between lots of people? Were you speaking to lots of people, and it kind of came up and went down. Some people got involved in it. Then we got into things about systems and how do people respond, and how do different people manage, and how we're and there were lots of different levels of people participating. So that the chief executive of a company, which is which makes a piece of software that's used quite often in hospitals, he was engaged in the conversation. A past um, director of the NHS Patient Safety Authority was involved in the conversation other people that were researchers, so as well as doctors and students talking about their experiences with reporting harm. So there was a lot of conversation, but but lots of other people might only have seen snippets of it, but I was seeing the whole thing until yeah. like 8 o'clock in the evening, So um, and have got really quite a few. But to try and make sense of, of what I've learned out of that for other people, that's a, quite a task. That really takes time to actually sit down and say, well, what could we? So, so you can definitely have conversation, um, and not just because there is there's a kind of phenomenon of having chats, which are quite fast and furious, and lots of tweets in an hour, and you're never really sure what's happened in in it. Yeah. But you can have actually ongoing conversations over time. I was going to ask you that very question actually. I wanted to maybe save it later in the podcast, Amory, but I've seen it mm. time and time again where you seem to. Um, maybe not necessarily stop, incite a conversation uh, about a particular, maybe it's a thorny issue um, mm. with lots of different people. And and, um, and I was wondering how you sort of try and keep track of that and and then go on to maybe turn something into to action because um, from the outside, you can see that lots of people are talking about different things, but does that ever get translated into actual change think, and results? If well, I can answer this, okay, go on. I was just going to say, I think Amory and I had a, had an example of this a few weeks ago. So there was something on education that someone posted that was quite controversial. And it was sort of 11 o'clock at night, I think it was, on a Sunday night. Um, and Amory saw this and tweeted to me about it. And we had a bit of a conversation about whether this was appropriate or correct. And then lots of other people started getting involved in things. And then Amory and I took it off, you know, off Twitter onto a, an email where we then discussed it. And from that, I have now had more emails and discussing how we can, you know, better give guidance to people on the things they post and this sort of thing. So I think often what you get is Twitter will be a forum for a lot of people to throw their views at it. But then actually the conversations that then happen maybe privately afterwards can result in actual tangible action that comes out of it. So I think in that sense, yes. Uh, but also there was an, the Sunday before that, again, thinking about patient safety, um, mm -hmm. there was a, uh, well, in, in a way related, patient opinion, the website which allows people to give feedback on their experiences of healthcare services. <laughs> they had tweeted um, a story about a patient getting woken up in the middle of the night by a junior doctor and being spoken to not very nicely. And I was starting off thinking, well, how, what could you do about this? How could you respond? And a few people had joined in with this conversation. And then during the day, then about an hour or so later, somebody said, well, why does somebody have to be woken up whenever they get to ward? Why couldn't everything be done in a and &E? So they were thinking about the system rather than about an individual bad doctor. Mm -hmm. And this started another conversation then about, well, people working in places where they did, where they tried 
working in different ways and try to do all the clerking in of patients in, in A&E. And then a consultant who works in acute medicine, he was involved in the conversation. Somebody who was actually from the, worked in the hospital came in and was involved. And afterwards, mm. it was said that the, this, this, this post had been up in patient opinion for a week or so with no response to it. But out of that, people, and I had taken the tweets and once I got home, I made it into a Storify again, which is a tool you can use to kind of make a conversation out of different social media content. And that that was then posted or shared with people who were involved in it, I think. And there was actually a response placed on patient opinion. Wow. And people are talking offline about what to do about that. So that's the great. thing, that's not my area of expertise. I'm not involved in making decisions about how to clerk in patients in hospitals. But I think it's interesting to try and see how you can get different people involved in a conversation and they can take it on and do something with it. Yeah. And I guess, well, uh, the podcast is The Digital Doctor, so I don't know how many people yeah. will be uh, not familiar with Twitter, but for those who don't use it, um, someone actually asked me about Twitter today, and probably the best, I don't know where this came from, but the best explanation I've heard of Twitter is like at a conference where you've got lots mm -hmm. of posters up, there are different walls, and there's the mm -hmm. person whose poster it is um, standing there and, and, and talking about their poster, and they may post different tweets or different lines of conversation about their, their subject. And you can choose to stand next to their poster or not, um, which is yep. analogous to either following someone or not. And um, and I guess I use Twitter quite like you, Jeremy, and I use it mainly as a consumer. That's one good thing about Twitter is that if you follow lots of similar people, so I'm in interested in neurology, for example, so I'll follow lots of neurologists and people interested in neuroscience. And um, and that means that if anything is happening significant that I should know about, likelihood is one of those people will will tweet about it so i get to hear the latest news but also you can ask for advice i mean jeremy you you chose your recent uh coffee machine based on a twitter conversation <laughs> with me right yeah exactly yeah um, uh i can tell us if you like um so yeah as, as an example like i sent a tweet out i'd started going to a new coffee shop um uh, shout out to urban coffee um and I, I sort of uh, tried a, a V60, which is the type of coffee they have, and mentioned this on Twitter. Um, and Stephen picked up on it, as did, uh, I think, uh, Ed, Ed Wallet as well, and both sort of messaged me. And, and we got discussing various types of coffee machines and various beans and which ones I should buy. And then the guys at the uh, Urban Coffee, also on Twitter, got involved. And we sort of four of us started having a discussion about things. They were bringing me up different coffees to try sitting in the cafe. I was then feeding back to Ed and Stephen on which ones were nicer. Um, <laughs> and between us all, we were coming to conclusions on what we should buy. So a bizarre <laughs> example of, yeah, Twitter working in, uh, in real time. You okay, Emery? Yeah, and I mean, that's the... <laughs> How do I respond to this? I know lots of geeky people. Being geeky and like and having conversations about coffee seemed to go together. So was this how did, did you end up getting an AeroPress or something? Was this it? I ended up getting a V60. Although um, I'm going to go. That's an different to an AeroPress. Yeah. So this is really tangential, but let's do it. So uh, a V60 is is drip coffee um, right. through a, a certain sort of cone shaped coffee maker that basically yeah. uh, extracts all the essence out of the beans as the water washes through. Whereas an AeroPress uh, is more pressurized, so you put coffee in and water, and then pressure the water through yeah. the coffee. Um, so it becomes more sort of espresso like. You've got to I try saw them somebody, both. somebody tweeting recently about getting an AeroPress. It probably I, was us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
yeah, my husband works actually in IT. And um, so his friends are obviously quite geeky and there's lots of coffee talk. Yeah. So, but, I mean, that's <clears throat> so <laughs> making decisions, asking for advice. Uh, yeah. I mean, I use Twitter for those kind of things, but mainly I'm sort of consuming content, seeing what's out there. What should I be reading today in the news? I mean, I don't actually uh, read newspapers very much, actually. I, I generally go to sites and look for articles that I might be interested in. And that's sometimes yeah. based on what I see on on different social networks. But also mm-hmm. you mentioned, Anne-Marie, about sort of um, engaging different communities around a particular mm-hmm. issue. But also there's been lots of uh, campaigning going on in Twitter with uh, maybe political issues or charitable issues, um, yeah. about, especially about the, the NHS recently. I mean, you've been part of that as well, haven't you? Me personally? Well, it's quite interesting because I'm, a, I'm a, in a sense an observer about this. Obviously, well, not maybe it's not obvious, but I work in Wales and Cardiff. So we're not going through the same uh, changes in the NHS yeah. that is happen, happening in England. Um, and I, rem- I remember whenever the, the NHS white paper was published at the very start and reading it and thinking, oh, my goodness, this is going to be very radical and tweeting about it and uh, wondering. And it was at that time, there still weren't that many doctors really on Twitter. So it wasn't really. And, and that had been a short time after all of the discussion about health reform in the US. So I used to get into kind of big discussions with people about that in the US because there weren't so many uh, people in the, on the UK on Twitter. Uh, anyway, and so I could sort of see this all happening and going on, but it, it was not really as it was directly impacting on me. But lots of people have said afterwards, they come up and said that they only saw stories about uh, or explanations through social media that they were not coming across in the press. And I think even even looking at issues like um, the Francis inquiry yeah. and and how you can deal with complex things like mortality statistics, there are there's some discussion of that which first of all you're seeing in blogs yeah. and then seeing in uh, the London Review of Books this week is something about it. And then seeing another blog about it today by an atheist, which is probably going to end up in the health services journal. So you actually see different perspectives on topics emerging in social media spaces before they actually become mainstream enough to get into the press. And that that's very interesting. I mean, there's, you get this from a non-medical point of view as well. Like um, yeah. Google now scour the, the well, they started by scouring the searches people made on Google um for to to spot flu epidemics before they were found so they would track to see how many people are looking for flu remedies but now other companies are doing this on twitter where they're searching for what people are looking at and discussing to spot trends that are happening to spot opinions on things um before any conventional methods pick it up because you can just canvas such opinion based on the amount of stuff people are throwing out there um yeah it's like even when I was I was back at, at home in Northern Ireland and there was quite a lot of snow just in the mountains up the road from where my mum lives, which is you can see it actually in my some of my my Twitter background or some of my pictures. Um, but anyway, so I was up there and we were there one. I searched Twitter. Normally, there's not that much talk about these mountains. And people were saying, oh, do you think there'll be anywhere good to go sledging? So people were over East Bank holiday talking about going sledging. And I was saying on Friday, I said on Friday, if people are talking about this on Twitter, 
it is going to be so busy up there tomorrow because that's only like a little sample of what people are actually interested in. Yeah. And lo and behold, yeah, there was tons of people out over the next few days all up there. Um, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I'm yeah, fascinated so by get, that idea. You've got an insight just into yeah what's what people are going to be talking about or thinking or doing, even whenever the number of people participate in a niche area, you can really see where what the direction of thought is possibly going to be. And there's enough people participating to make it in some way representative. It's not completely, but it'll tell you something about what's going on. Yeah, I think the idea of using sort of opinions like that, like the Google flu trends, uh, as you mentioned, Jeremy, I think mm. they famously got it wrong uh, maybe a year yes. or two ago. Um, it, it was more recently. Oh, was it? Got, yeah. Yeah, because they were thinking that there's actually so much talk in the media that that feeds back. So the searches are driven by... That's right. Yeah. So if the, if the media hypes a certain particular yeah. story, then people search for it more and uh, that kind of spiral gives false results. But up yep. until then, I think they'd had they'd, they'd mirrored the actual epidemics um, and predicted them with with quite good accuracy. And I suspect as well, actually, by looking at what people are tweeting about. Um, so one of the things about Twitter is you've got such a small um, amount of space to write in. You tend to do one of two things: you either post a comment or you post a link with a, a sort of some sort of comment about the link. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I imagine if you're searching through tweets and you're actually looking for people saying, oh, I've got a cold, I'm feeling ill, that sort of thing, you can very quickly extract what uh, is being linked to about an article about something and what Mm -hmm. is actually being discussed as something more personal. So I imagine actually if you correlated the data from something like Twitter with what people were searching for, you could probably improve the algorithm and actually get it very, Mm -hmm. very accurate. And there's um uh there's a I think it's in the Journal of Computational Science. There's a article about how Twitter, the mood of people in Twitter, can predict the stock market. Yeah, it's true, and they've they've shown that actually works, and it's it's reliable. Fascinating. It's cr- yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> but how do you think doctors um can take advantage of not just Twitter but social media in general um to enhance their productivity and their workflow? What do you think that, that as as maybe what advice would you give to someone who maybe doesn't use social media as much as 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 us at the moment? I mean, what would you say the advantages for them would be? I I would say one of the first things I say to anyone who uses maybe Facebook but nothing else is Facebook is a very different thing to other social media sources. So just looking through my Facebook now, everything is about what people are doing this evening or baby photos. Whereas Twitter is all about, um, I've got, you know, some science discoveries that have come up, some new libraries, some new papers that I'd be interested in. So if you've only used something like Facebook and you consider that to be social media, I would recommend looking at other things because they can be very, very different. Um, Obviously, I'm not a doctor. So I, I can't say specifically what I think uh, a doctor would find. You should have from, an honorary title. I, think. I should have an honorary. Well, I might, I might just get a PhD at some point so I can call myself a doctor and really confuse everyone. Um, <laughs> but I mean, so looking, for instance, at what we do in education from the social side there, I mean, we have like this question and answer bank where uh, a medical student can, well, anyone can come on, but it tends to be just medical students that come on and ask a question about a topic they may be stuck on. Uh, and then somebody else, maybe a doctor, maybe a more senior medical student, comes on and gives them a response. Um, and then from there, you can get other people commenting on the responses. You can get people voting stuff up and down. Um, and this this model is actually based on something that I use in software, uh, a website called Stack Overflow that anyone that's done any software development will have heard of, yeah. where basically 
you ask a question, well, pretty much any technical thing that you Google, the top result will be somebody asking that question on Stack Overflow and someone else responding. And that sort of question answer form is, is a type of social media just as much as Twitter is a type of social media. It's people getting together and sharing their thoughts and discussing something. So I think there's a, a, a long-term big potential uh, in, in that area. Um, and, and then again, sharing new new research and you know new papers and even ideas and blog posts. People post blogs on education now, as they do on many other places, that you know have got real interest to other medics, and we get great discussions and great comments. And you know, some of them can be really controversial. Some of them can just be light and, and relaxing. And actually, I think having this worldwide community of other medics out there, who at the end of the day you can unwind with and you know, you can look at some funny jokes that only doctors will get, or you can read some sort of serious papers or serious reflections on someone's experience, I think is a, a good way of realising that it's not just you fighting against the whole world, and it's not even just you and the people in your hospital or practice. There's actually a whole load of medics out there in a lot of different situations who you can be part of that, that community with. Yeah. How about you, Emery? What do you, what do you think doctors yeah, can get I out of Yeah, I think Twitter? it's actually wider than that. It's, it's actually about not just talking to people who are like yourself and it's actually hearing from people who come from from different perspectives so that what I find useful is knowing what what people in England are talking about who are working in a different health service or how people are thinking about doing how teachers are handling problems or how um, patient groups are looking at the conditions and making sense of or try you know organizing campaigns or doing different initiatives or what they think about what we're actually discussing uh, or tweeting and that's what i that's what i find useful is the diversity in opinion and the thing is that takes a lot of bit of work because if you're talking to people that always think the same as you or, or, or not to think the same as you but have been where you where you you've spent a long time i can talk to a doctor who's trained in Scotland and we can both understand each other because we've gone through essentially the same kind of processes and ways of thinking about things and all the rest of it. While um, if I talk to somebody that's coming from a different perspective, then you'll sometimes have miscommunication not understand each other. So it takes a bit and takes a bit more work to understand that perspective, but it's really worthwhile. Yeah. And you often maybe don't get to hear that just in your normal day to day work. Yeah. Now, um, I'm glad we've got you on the show because I know that there's been some recent changes to the guidance on uh, social media use for doctors. <laughs> and um, and actually, I haven't read it, I have to say. And I wanted you to kind of tell me what, what was going on. But I just Googled um, GMC, the, the General Medical Council and social media, and up pops an article and uh, your name's at the top of it, Anne-Marie. So it looks like we've, we've got the right person. What What's, what's going on? I think, is that... Is that what I what I wrote? Is that the article that I wrote before the draft guidance came out? Uh, so it looks like uh, yeah, April to June twenty twelve, and you were talking about yeah. the the draft guidance, and the new guidance is coming into effect on the twenty second of April, April this that's year. Right. So, so people had been asking the GMC really liter for guidance on social media, um, and they decided to produce this. The BMA had produced some first of all and other organizations rcgp have recently come up with uh, with kind of highway code and around that time i was speaking to one of the people that was involved in producing it um but 
and he said, will you write something about what you think maybe should be in here? So I, I wrote that article kind of saying that in some to some extent, there was a bit of a feeling of moral panic right. around social media. Moral panic is something that often happens whenever, especially new technologies come along and young people and think, oh, the world is all going to, you know, we're all going to hell in a handcart because people are going to do awful things uh and there's not really and there's some evidence that people when something new comes along make mistakes and people have breached confidentiality and there are there's some evidence of that but in general um most of what happens is not bad and it's actually very good and people learn how to to get the most out of it so i was a little bit skeptical in a way about even the need to produce guidance right uh, and i've sort of said that said it in that piece but i said well but if you, at the end of the day, when when the GMC produces something like this, along with any of the organisations, when they do it, it's really good because it gives you something to to read and to think. Oh well, is that what I think? That's not what I think. That doesn't make sense to me. Or this is what I do. Or oh, I hadn't thought about that before. And that's that's the benefit of something like that coming along because it, it at least even makes people think that it is the the the, the GMC guidance actually starts with recognizing the positive benefits of doctors engaging in social media. Or with and patients or, or with just sort of communities and talking about with, healthcare? Well, lots of different kind of dimensions, learning about being able to network, being able to disseminate information, being able to engage with different audiences. So it starts off saying that. Um, and I think for a lot of people that would be very skeptical about social media and think it's just something that, you follow, you know, you follow Twitter to hear what celebrities are having for breakfast to see that the GMC are actually saying this could be very beneficial. It's actually a very positive thing. Yeah, I think and so. And it might make people, might make people actually see what could this mean for me? How could it be beneficial to me? I guess people are worried because it's an unknown and people are always afraid of, yeah. of, of what they, they don't know. But I, I'm particularly worried about um, social media in the context of medicine and doctors um, um, for two reasons. One is that mm -hmm. there is the capacity to, I mean, we think that we're talking to ourselves on Twitter as, as a sort of closed group of people interested in medical education, but actually there are people with, um, you know, with families with particular disorders or, or, you know, people with conditions themselves who you stand a good chance to running into someone who has a very strong opinion on things. I think you need to be very careful with what you say on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and we'll probably come back to about sort of persona and personality um, it like is what you see, what you get on Twitter, maybe a bit later. But the other thing is the permanence of it. So that if I say something in passing on the bus, that can never really be proved. Um, whereas if it's on Twitter, you know, you could see it on the front page of The Guardian the next day. Yeah, that's true. What do you think about the permanence issue, Jeremy? Um, I it's interesting. So I mentioned earlier this social network that I sort of made when I was like 14 or whatever. Um, there's the same on, on the internet called uh, the, the Wayback Machine, which basically lets you look at uh, any web page in history pretty much at any stage and pretty much any 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 month over the last 20 years. So I can go back and look at what I wrote and what all of my friends wrote, you know, 20 years ago at the age of 14. Um, and I'm pretty sure a lot of our opinions about a lot of things have changed since then. Um so there is this issue that, you know, th this isn't a new thing. Anything that you've put on the internet ever is still out there. Mm -hmm. um, 
Twitter just makes it more accessible. And so it is, it is risky. Um, you need to be careful what you say. Um, just my, my bigger issue actually with Twitter and permanency and that sort of thing is that often your um, comments can be taken out of context. So you see a tweet that stands by itself and can look like you're saying something, you know, atrocious, but actually it's part of a much wider conversation. Yeah. Um, and somebody could come along a year later and find that tweet and kick up a massive fuss over it, not realizing you were discussing something in, in a certain context. And I think a lot of people actually don't use Twitter and understand the context of conversations in the correct way a lot of the time. Um, if you're going to post anything on the internet, if you're going to say anything, if you're going to write anything down, um, you've got to be careful what you say. If you're in a hospital and you say something and a patient overhears and they call you upon it, it you could still get into trouble for it. So I think don't make insensitive comments and don't make stupid comments in any way. And definitely don't do them somewhere that you're potentially going to be heard by the whole world and that can't be erased or eradicated. Um but I think if you're sensible, it's not that I don't I don't see it as this huge issue. So it's like a common if you're sense sensible approach. and respond Yeah, if you're responsible about what you write, then you know, are you going to regret that? There's there's nothing I've put on Twitter as far as I know that I would regret having put on Twitter because I just yeah. think before I put anything on there. Exactly. I always quote this document. It was uh and and in literally every medical interview I've been in, it's been a, a you know, my, my staple uh, quote because actually I think it's very inspiring so there was a, a report of the working party in 2005 called Doctors in Society and I think Richard Horton had a, a the editor of the Lancet had a lot to do with it, it writing it and uh, I've actually quoted her name wrong I've called her Cyril uh, uh, Cilla Black once but it's uh, Dame Carol Black who who we all know who was the president of the Royal College of Physicians at that time and uh, it's a very common sense document about how as a clinician, um, you should interact with patients and interact with the wider community. And um, I find actually the GMC guidance reading it, sometimes it can be very dog dogmatic and it can be quite oppressive and maybe demotivating. It's just sort of a list of commandments that you must follow <laughs> at all costs. Um, whereas um, I found this document was, was very common sense. Um, we, you know, I like to keep things quite simple and it was just, you know, be good, be excellent to each other. Um, but it was just talking about how you should interact with um, how what professionalism is and how you should interact with your patients, your colleagues, and and the wider community. And I think as long as you follow that document, even though it's from two thousand and five, you'll be okay in a social media setting. Yes, I mean what um, what we with regards to things kind of going wrong. I think the thing is you can really overestimate. I mean, what is the worst that can happen? Uh, and what really are, are going to be the implications of it? I guess that you may do something that is that bad that you do get hauled up in front of the GMC or something, but it's really pretty unlikely to happen. It might be that you do something and at this stage, whenever it's still new, it manages to make the press because it's the first time this thing's ever happened. But really, <clears throat> even if that happens, you can actually still probably move on from that and uh, people won't really essentially remember it. And all the so I really... I really think we can kind of overestimate the risk um, because if you are reasonably sensible, as you say, then it then it'll be okay. Now, leading on from that about this sort of sense of responsibility and voice, this we the very controversial aspect of the the full GMC guidance was the recommendation that if you are identifying yourself as a doctor, 
you should identify yourself by name. So really against this, the idea of pseudonymity, where you're actually using um, another term or kind of like an ID to identify yourself without That's giving a name. That's some of my favorite, favorite Twitter and Facebook accounts. Yeah. So, so, so those were, uh, and, and I think that's, that's really overtaken. That's the main thing that people have actually been talking about with the GMC guidance rather than the, the part where it's saying that it can be positive, which is a bit of a pity. I don't know how outside of Twitter people are aware of this conversation, but, um, there's been a, a lot of negativity and a lot of people very hurt and upset about the wording of the GMC guidance which is very different to what was in the draft guidance. When the draft guidance came out, it was completely uncontroversial. I wrote that piece and went along with it. Nobody talked about it. Nobody really discussed the fact that the war, that the GMC were coming out with social media guidance. Yeah. And it, it just didn't create any kind of waves. And then when they brought out and changed this wording in the the, the final version, it's it's created a lot of talk in the Twitter, Twitter sphere and blogosphere. Um, nice. Now, by the time our <laughs> podcast goes out, the GMC might actually have responded to this and clarified some aspects of this. And hopefully the concerns and worries that people have may be sorted out. I'd hope that they will, um, because I think a lot of people are worried about things that they're going to get into trouble. I think there's well, a massive amount of ignorance here from the general public or from the general medical public. If they think that posting under an anonymous handle is in any way anonymous. Um, yeah. If you do anything on the Internet like under any name or anything you that, that can be tracked back traced back to you um yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it it's ridiculous how easily it is to but, find but out the, who said something but the thing is it's not going to be for most people it's not relevant most people who are writing under pseudonyms are not going to in any way be of any concern to to anybody else no. uh, and also people find it quite there's a lovely well, it's quite, I mean, people have been described as quite sad. There's somebody blogging called, and their Twitter ID is Mr. Sergey, and it's a surgeon. Uh, and he's he'd already taken down his Twitter account for a few weeks over Lent, I think. And now he said that this guidance has made him decide that he, he's taking, he, he probably will stop it. But five months ago, there was a blog post that he'd written sort of saying, evaluating two years of Twitter. And it's really interesting because he was saying that it was really quite difficult to keep this second identity, yeah. that it started off being a way of being able to discuss things. But now when he was meeting, I'm saying he, I think it's he rather than she, but when he was meeting people uh, offline who knew him and they were discussing this, he was not admitting that this was actually him. So then he felt he was being a bit duplicitous. Mm. And that if he did then come out and say, actually, that was me, people would be saying, well, you've been dishonest not sharing this. So there's, there's quite a bit of a burden and, it's quite a big task to actually manage a second identity under a pseudonym. Yeah. And you hear a lot of people kind of, there was somebody else who's a mental health nurse came out recently when gave the real name and they were saying it's kind of like a bit of a relief and it's it, to people initially, it can feel like an easier thing to operate under a pseudonym without your real name. But actually I think for most people, it's easier using your real name. It just, it's yeah. just Although, more comfortable. The, the advantage of, of having a pseudonym is that you can perhaps say things that you wouldn't otherwise mm. say. So if there is a controversial issue, I mean, I, I suppose let's move on and talk about personality and persona. Yeah. So I was very, I was very pleasantly surprised when I met both of you because we, we had met in the sort of blogosphere and, and Twitter world 
um, before we actually met in real life. And we, we met for the first time, all of us, I think, together at the Digital Doctor Conference. That was the first yeah. time I met you both. And yeah. I and I actually felt that, that the personality and persona that you portray on Twitter and other social networks actually match very well with, with what you're Good. like in real life. <laughs> I'm not sure if you felt the same. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I mean that that's that's I always think that that's a really good thing that people say to me. Um you're the way that I thought. Well, you're you as would argumentative be. on Twitter as you are in real life. <laughs> exactly. Um and I thought that's really nice because I don't feel that I'm trying to to betray something else. And to be honest, I spend that much, you know, I've tweeted that much that I couldn't really be somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, so, there's only um, so much, so much, because actually, Jeremy, you'll love this, but I've actually written a script in Ruby <laughs> to, um, to try and, no, it isn't going. to try and work what? out. I've, I've assumed, Amory, that you've got a, a typing speed, I've been quite generous, actually, of 70 words per minute. Right. That's fast. Good. Yeah, well pretty done, fast. Amory. But you do you do a lot of typing, so I've assumed yeah. pretty good typing speed. So I've worked. My little script tells me how many tweets you've got. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I can see where this is going. I only run this once a week, um, just to see. And, and and I sort of take how many tweets you've done in the in a certain given period, and yeah. uh, and how many words. <laughs> I assume that you've got 130 characters. So I convert the the words per minute into characters per minute. Yeah. And then I work out how many minutes you've spent writing tweets, and that's not reading or anything else. Okay, and go on, tell me. No, no, no. Um, you haven't run it yet. No, no, I haven't run it this week. I haven't run oh, this really? Week. Oh, it's, what have you got for other weeks? But it's several hours a week, Anne Marie. I won't. Right. So I, I'm going to defend Anne Marie slightly, um, but only very slightly. Actually, I'm looking through Anne Marie's Twitter feed now. I don't because that your your Twitter count includes things that you retweet. Absolutely. But actually, actually looking through the tweets, you've tweeted maybe. 50 times today maybe more probably more i think you've written at least 60 tweets today um so that's a li- you know if you if you take spend a minute per tweet which is probably or 30 seconds you spend somewhere between half an hour now i have about i have a ridiculously oh, yeah. high retweet to tweet ratio so for me oh. i tweet about seven or eight times per time i actually write a tweet but for you most of yours have been written in conversations that's right always from the very start at least about two-thirds of my tweets have been conversational yeah exactly um rather than so today yeah, I mean, i'm yeah, just looking back loads, to probably nine eight or nine out of ten are actual conversations with people rather than tweets but Henry, you're of. you're i mean i'm sure people aren't stopping you in the the local uh, supermarket whilst they get their milk but you are somewhat of a minor internet celebrity um <laughs> <laughs> and I wondered how you manage. I mean, because the internet is twenty four seven. You've got this sort of barrage of tweets coming at you, and you're very prolific. And you are you you are involved in most of the big conversations that come out around medicine and the internet. How do you deal with it? Because I I do believe that this is almost like a third job for you. Well, that's kind of my mum. When I was back home, my mum was saying, "So what is? So what? What actually comes out of this?" And she asked. She used to ask me this. Like, what actually is the benefit of this? And you're right, but I kind of feel it in some ways is a bit like being a public academic. Right. So this is actually moving into a role or a space for for being, um, for being a visible kind of way of 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 doing your work, of actually really engaging. But at the same time, there's all this the, the thing of of how well actually it's better to write papers and win grants if you're an academic than it is 
to have conversations and yeah i suppose that's true so you've got this kind of tension between um what is legitimate academic work um but i mean i i did because of the, the it was very i wrote a blog post afterwards about the gmc guidance and there have been there's over 100 comments on that blog post now which is a lot uh, and i also went around and found other people blogging about it and kind of shared that and pulled it all together and did a storify and i did do that over the easter weekend when her when i was back home with my family so that i was not really and it was i was just quite conscious that because this was such a hot topic just over that weekend that I was, that I was spending time kind of doing work still, and that is something that you have to be really quite careful about. Is when do you just really leave things behind? Um, there's a great um, person who's looked at this about how we manage in in networks, uh, Howard Rheingold, and he's written a book called NetSmart, talking about network literacy. Uh, saying that this how to actually manage and learn and be part of networks is going to be something that we're all going to have to learn going into the 21st century and the key thing he said the first thing is how do you learn to manage your attention yeah uh, and I had decided that over these last few days this topic and this conversation was that important that even well the weather it was too cold to really be going out and walking that I would spend time actually getting involved in that conversation, even though I was on holiday, while lots of other times there isn't anything more important going on and I wouldn't then engage in it. But I think that's a, you have to just make these decisions about is this conversation important enough to actually get involved in? So it's like anything else in life, you know, Absolutely. with work and hobbies and it, it's, uh, you have to sort of see where your priorities and your commitments lie, that kind of thing. Absolutely. I, I, th I, th I think there's great, great value actually in it. So I, I, I slightly controversially don't follow Anne Marie on Twitter. Um because it's not controversial. Uh, it was at the time when I, when, I, when I announced me. it to a conference that you were a Twitter spammer, I think it was a slightly controversial. <laughs> but so but I do follow people like Anne Marie in my domain. So Anne Marie tweets a lot um about a lot of stuff that if I was if I was medical, I would definitely follow her because I'd find it very interesting. And I follow other people in the sort of my specific tech world that that tweet an awful lot and I read most of their stuff. And actually, they're providing a brilliant public service role for me. All of the latest news, lots of interesting thought-provoking things, lots of things that give me ideas when I'm working come from stuff that they've found and they've tweeted. And so, actually, I think, whereas to a lot of people, it seems like a bit of a waste of time or something, you know, just a silly hobby or whatever. Actually, you know, you're, you're offering an awful lot of value. And Anne-Marie's got, you know, nearly 10,000 followers. And those people still are following her, you know, because of the value they're giving her, even though they're getting an awful lot of tweets from her. So therefore, they must be finding a lot of value in her. And a lot of those tweets, I imagine, will also be retweeted, which means that they, that means that the people that, so <laughs> if I retweet one of Anne-Marie's tweets, then everyone who follows me sees it as well. And so, a lot of you know a, a massive amount of other people will also be seeing those tweets and getting value so i think although to a lot of people it's like well what are you gaining what's the value well actually you're offering you're, you're doing a great public service and you know as someone who's medical and that tends to be you know therefore someone who cares about people and you know wants to make people well and wants to be involved in public health actually you're providing a really good public service there well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Anne-Marie. But, but I completely recognise that most people are never going to want to engage 
with it to the same level that I have done. That's that is really a bit. I am a bit atypical. Most people are not going to be like me. Uh, I know a friend who did a he did a master's in public health for me years ago, and he he follows me and other people on Twitter, but never has never tweeted. And then every day the next day at work, he emails people around with the interesting things that he's came across. That's cool. And that's the way that he uses it completely to consume, just as you're saying. He doesn't want to. Sometimes he'd send me an email about something. He might have seen that I've tweeted something, and yeah. he would email me about it rather than actually reply on Twitter. I want to bring so a couple different... of those points together, actually. So, um, what, yeah. what you were saying, Jeremy, about um, value, and I guess speaks to the word reputation. And I want to kind of marry that up with what you were saying, Anne-Marie, about you see it as being a sort of in-public academic. And mm-hmm. and actually there's um, a lot of value in uh, using social media metrics to see what people are talking about doing research. Because actually for a long time, people have realised that the peer review system in its current iteration isn't adequate. And actually there's a, a big move now in, in journals, especially yeah. open source journals, to actually engage with social media and people using it to not only help with um, uh, the metrics of how well an article was received. So instead of just using the citation as a metric of how influential a piece of research is, but also using the sort of views and shares on social media networks. Um, And also, I think it speaks to, I don't think anyone's fully captured this yet, um, about people's reputation. So if some, if, if, you know, one of the sort of emeritus professors of a particular specialty said something about a paper, I, I think that would carry more weight than someone who was Absolutely. maybe less informed. This is something that we're really big on pushing with education. So our whole like vision is basically um, social peer reviewing. So somebody posts a video that they've made and people will like it or dislike it based on the quality of the content and they will comment and we, so we have somebody who might post a video somebody else comes along and says great video but this bit could do with improving and they quickly go away change it and then re-upload it um or you know you write and you write we're about to introduce notes so you can write notes and then other people can come and improve your notes cite wikipedia but you know specifically for uh, medics and one of the things that we're building in is this idea of um reputation and badges so the more you do and the more you get voted up for the more reputation you get and when you do specifically you know good things so if you get a few things that you write that are very well liked then you get a badge for that um and i think as that moves on as well you're right that there is a uh, an academic quality as well if somebody has is a senior consultant then you want to flag that up on the work they're doing so if they comment on that that wants to be saying that everyone sees as a top comment you know this is right or this is wrong and this top consultant has said this um yeah. i think it's very important moving forward that's really quite interesting because i think sometimes you will hear people say things like social media flattens hierarchies everybody you know we, one of the we run medical education chats so you've got um, people from all different levels, like deans of medical schools participating along with students. Some some students using pseudonyms, which is completely okay. Um, so you've got this notion that the hierarchies are flat and then you can have more people participating in a conversation. But other people would say, but at the end of the day, uh, if you're kind of an important person offline, you're more likely to be paid a lot of attention to online as well. So that power hierarchies are actually replicated online. Um, But it's not just as uh, you can still try and talk and engage and be you can have very because because the level because there's quite a low barrier to actually engaging. You can actually 
form links and uh, learn what other people are doing in a lot more easier way and have access to that knowledge, which you wouldn't otherwise. And that's that's really the strength of it. Um, I think as well, like, so talk, talking from like my, my tech world, if I see somebody who's a very you know respected programmer come along and make a comment on some bit of open source work or I've done, I can take that seriously because I know yes. that person in real life is a big, you know, a, a, a good, a good programmer. But equally, I, I have the advantage of being on the internet. If somebody else who I've never heard of comes along and makes that comment, I actually can go and look, you know, in the open source world, other stuff they've done, or I can go onto Twitter yeah. and look at their profile and I can get a feel for actually how knowledgeable they are. And so in that respect, it flattens it out a bit as well, because it's not just somebody that's been well heard of because they're the editor yeah. of the BMJ. Yeah. yeah. You, you can, yeah. And it's quite because I was at the BMJ evidence conference last week and in thinking about future publications, there was quite a, well, it was a great um, talk by Ginny Barber from PLOS, the, right. yep. one of the big open access journals or or system of journals virtually. And she was saying that in PLOS one, I think in PLOS one, that over they could identify two different audiences for the journals. This is an open access journal, mm -hmm. and they could identify by, by behaviors uh, a kind of an academic audience who came to the papers through um, through maybe like a, an academic search and who downloaded the PDF. Um, while you had a broad audience who came through it through social media and maybe just looked at the HTML, so they were a, a different kind of way of engaging with the content. Uh, and I think that's really that's really interesting for people if you're you're thinking about in the future, who 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 are we producing research for now? Who's an, who who is the consumer of academic work? Um, yeah. I mean, and she was saying in the future, if you're an author, you have to be on something like Twitter because yeah. fifty percent of fifty percent of their papers are now discussed within social media, um, and it's a big source of traffic. Mm -hmm. um for them to their their site so i think that's we have we have publishers who are really excited in this as well so actually you know mm -hmm. textbook publishers who want to give their the authors of their textbooks a way to interact with the, the, the medics that are consuming them um and you know and they're excited about the idea of getting their their textbooks on things like medication where they can have conversations with the actual consumers because that's just never been possible before um, and it also shortens your iteration cycle. So if you are writing things like journals or textbooks, you know, you can get immediate feedback. And actually, especially if they're digital, not paper, you can update those. And, you know, that can work in anything. And you have a, co a constantly improving product rather than a product that has a textbook edition that comes out every three years yeah. or a journal. And, and people can just learn whenever they've got things wrong. I mean, the GMC yeah. have got pretty much something somewhere or other wrong about this guidance whenever it has produced such a, there's been such a bad reaction to it online. Mm. So, but they now know that quickly and can try and do something to explain to people what they really meant or clarify and address the issues. Um, mm. And that's, that's really, I mean, I've today, well, I've been reading, trying to, you know, working on, on writing a paper, came across several papers that I didn't have and kind of mentioned, just mentioned that I may be going to look for these papers and people have sent me links to them um which is you know really useful but also then we have a discussion about what's in the paper or uh, so it's it's it and at that level most people aren't going to engage with that um but you people will pick up on, on uh, some aspects of what you're saying that's relevant to them or not yeah i mean uh that's interesting um 
because the other day I was talking with Matthew Kiernan, who is the editor-in-chief of a journal, a BMJ journal on neurology called the JNMP. And Mm -hmm. um, I think you're exactly right uh, about um, being in research is that if you want to to drive citations and you want to drive your, your journal or your point home, I think you have to be engaged in social media. I think it makes a very, very big difference. And also, in the last week, I've also seen two two pieces of writing, both by psychiatrists, actually, which have not been published in the places that they were intended to be published. So, uh, But they've published them themselves anyway on their blog. And there's been a conversation around the fact that this hasn't got published but is in their blog now. There were kind of opinion pieces or reviews or like essays. And I think that's quite interesting that you can you can obviously still disseminate Mm. Uh, your opinions even yeah. though it isn't into the format because if you build up a network it's not the same not at all the same yet and we've not moved to that stage where you can just self-publish like peer review but but people will actually respond and discuss it and there's a there's some form of post-publication peer review but it does beg the question doesn't it uh, uh, what, what sort <laughs> of value uh, are journals and the peer review system adding i mean of course it's tried and tested but once yeah. you're once you're involved, and and Jeremy, definitely, I think that the sort of agile, iterative approach should be taken to research, mm. and it's so yeah. much faster. I mean, if peer review was done in the way that some of these, uh, the code, like the, the 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 open web frameworks, like Ruby on Rails, for example, was developed, mm. we'd get a lot farther, a lot quicker, I think. It's really true. I mean, so I I, I see this like I woke up this morning and had like three three. Uh, what we call pull requests. So three things that other people had written to improve one of the libraries that I've got open source. And, you know, they'd come along, they'd found this thing, used it and sent me some patches to that code. And I applied those this morning and now everyone in the world can use a a new version of that. And if you have that sort of system in journals and in research, you, you really can keep things up to date. And there's no reason why you can't have a system where you publish a paper to your website and then, you know, people can come along, they can read it and they can press a button on there that says, I support this or I peer review this or whatever. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, you know, as soon as people of a certain academic level, uh, three people have, have done that, you can then say, well, this has been peer reviewed. And then if there's a change made, well, then it becomes unpeer reviewed. You can look at the peer reviewed state. You can see this new state that's here. And then three more people can come along and peer review it. And that's the sort of thing that we're moving, we want to move towards with education. Yeah, that's very interesting. There's also, there's a Cornell uh, University library. Um, and I came across this because I spoke to someone who, um, it's, it's a physics thing, physics and mathematics, I think, uh, yes. and computer science. But it's called uh, Archives, and that's spelled A R X I V dot org. And basically, they're moving towards just that. So apparently, before you submit a paper to a journal, um, actually, what the journal has copyright for is actually the article that they have had input into the final version. But the version you originally submit to them or the versions before that aren't theirs and they're yours. And you can upload them to this thing called the archive, which people do. And they peer review it on there. And often the peer review on the archive is much, much faster and probably more in-depth than the peer mm. review they get from the journal and people are accountable for the peer review then because their name's attached to it yeah i think that the idea of open open peer review that you do get in in um in some of the journals the new open access journals is really interesting because you it can actually the, some of the bmc ones you can actually go we discussed in twitter journal club which we didn't mention um which is uh was started by uh, junior doctor Natalie Sylvie and a medical student um, 
that they, they, they so they started this journal club and we w- discussed in one week a medical education paper which was in BMC which is all the papers that are discussed are open access and the paper was about could you predict how people could, what was the how do different medical schools perform graduates perform in postgraduate exams and actually the main one of the big things that explained this was actually the entrance requirements into the medical school uh, was a stronger predictor rather than than anything else but the interesting was looking at the peer reviews commenters on the paper and the the controversy around it so we were picking up on some of the same issues and discussing the paper and being able to access that and see what the peer reviewer has thought were criticisms and how they were dealt with in the papers really, really useful. That's cool. So, which is the same, but you have to have a very, a, quite a mature community to be able to get people going on to having that confidence to do that discussion that you're talking about. Yeah. Because say the BMJs had rapid responses for years, but still lots of papers don't really engender that much conversation. That's and true. people, people have barriers to actually commenting. It's Fee um, Douglas, Fee Douglas and, and Fee Douglas. And Natalie. Oh, um, yeah. Um, but uh, stop the press actually because there was a, a, an effort to to kind of uh, there was a Kickstarter project so for those who don't know Kickstarter is a sort of crowdfunded um, uh, I guess what would you call it a platform whereby if you have an idea you can ask for funding and if you get a certain level you'll get that funding and you can go forward with a project and the project was Hypothesis so it's Hypoth fee and then dot is and it was uh, an attempt by um, a group in America um, along with partners and who were some of them were Google as well to actually peer review or to have some sort of reputation system by annotating the web so there's like a layer that goes over the web where yeah. you can see how um, genuine people think a piece of information on the web was but I've just gone to their website and it looks like it's dead I hope the project hasn't died that there was horrible. another project that Google had a service I think which allowed you to do that to annotate web pages um, because did. a good few a few years ago um, I had downloaded actually paid twenty two dollars I think to download a paper which was about is our social networks and is being online bad for children and learning and it was a very poor piece of research but it had got commented it had got discussed quite widely in the press and I actually went and, and bought it and downloaded it and sort of wrote a kind of critique then in my blog office piece of research and then um, I actually went around that stage going around different websites newspapers trying to say look look at my blog I've actually read it and it's not very good um, but one of the things is how do you actually manage to dis- how do, yeah how do you annotate and let people know whenever things have been critiqued. And there have been some things come out, I think, NHS Hack Day, about yeah. that, which allow people to see NHS choices, uh, things about pieces of research that have been on. But anyway, we've probably been talking long enough, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Um, <laughs> I think, I'm not sure how many people have had dinner, but uh, I'm certainly quite hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I probably should leave everyone with uh, a final thought. And um, Eric Schmidt, who everyone will know, is um, the chairman of Google, although I'm not really sure of his current role, but they see, the Google have seemed to have sent him on a bit of a touring uh, the world doing some talks. And he actually came to Cambridge um, a couple of months ago and did lots of talks that were very interesting on um, the di- about digital relationships, digital personality, and how the world and countries interact on a global scale now that the internet is is there. And 
um, he made a point that I thought was very interesting that I'd like to sort of say, because Mm -hmm. if you're not sure that you want to engage in social media because you're worried about some of the guidance and and you've heard bad things in the press, he made the point that um, if you don't cultivate your own online presence, someone else will do it for you. Mm. And you only, (laughs) it is very true. Um, And a story added to that is there was a, a guy in our lab actually and he, he come to the lab he was there for a few weeks and he doesn't have a facebook account but within two weeks someone had built him his very own facebook account and started uploading photos and stories about him so it, you know just a sort of word of warning it's a, if you want your you know your own kind of persona you do have to cultivate it and manage it yourself otherwise someone will do it for you yeah, did you read the bizarre story today about, I think, it's, I can't remember his name, it was Mark Semple, who had had his Twitter account and got, enjoyed playing around with it and invented this story, which he played out over several days, that he'd actually got kidnapped on a plane or something and died. And then, so he closed his Twitter account down then, but then other accounts came up using his name and kind of pretending they were him. Oh, no. And he contacted Twitter to say, look, these people aren't really me. And they said, well, you're allowed to set up a parody account. That's not really, mm. that's that's not against it. So by actually removing, he sort of said, well, what is he now? Is he this, are these other people that, that other people could think are him? Are they really him as well? And kind of like a Turing test for. <laughs> nice. So, think, uh, I mean, yeah, that's yeah, a bit meta though. <laughs> the social networks that come out now, um, app.net is one that came started recently. And um they charged like £30 for you to get on the beta of it. Um, but people were signing up left, right and centre because they wanted to make sure that they got their handle. So for me, yeah. you know, I'm I'm IHID, everyone online. I would want to make sure I got IHID in case it became a big thing. And, you know, people are willing to pay that money to make sure that their profile, what they're known as on the internet or who they are, you know, that they can make that, that stance on that site before someone else does it for them. So, yeah, yeah it's well, very true. One of the ones that I didn't manage to do this with was Pinterest. So Pinterest has a reputation. Well, it's one of the um, sites for like collecting different bits and pieces that you find on the web. And unusually, it has not been dominated by geeky men. It's actually Mm. had a really large number of women, especially brides-to-be, going around finding all the bits and pieces for the wedding and what kind of cupcake they would like and dresses and things like this. (laughs) And that was a big, a big demographic that started using um, Pinterest first. And lo and behold, when I went to get AM Cunningham, which is what I use for in all my accounts, it had been taken by a bride to be. It must really? have been someone you annoyed on Twitter. What? <laughs> it must have been someone, <laughs> someone you know. So since we're talking about social media, um, if you want to find me on Twitter, my Twitter handle is at StevenCW, that's S-T-E-V-A-N-C-W, and Jeremy, yours is? I had I-H-I-D everywhere on the internet. Very good. And it, yours, Anne-Marie, you said it's um, at A.M. Cunningham? Yeah. Great. So um, thank you very much, guys, for talking. I really enjoyed it. And um, uh, there's lots, lots more we could have spoken about, um, but I guess all think good things should come to an end. So if you want to hear more from the Digital Doctor podcast, then subscribe to us on iTunes, or you can visit our website at www.thedigitaldoc.co.uk um, and forward slash podcasts. Thanks very much, guys. Um, Thanks. Thank you. And we'll speak soon, I guess.